Hey everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 162, February of 2023. Our guest this month is Claire Leibowitz-King. Claire wrote the play Outside the Gates, which was performed at the 2022 Edinburgh Fringe. A lot of Claire's work centers on, as she puts it, interrogating power and examining the systems we live under. Outside the Gates is a powerful two-hander about a pair of mothers, one an Iranian living in England, the other an American, waiting outside school gates for their children to be dismissed, and the dynamics, both political and emotional, that happened between them. So you know what I want to start off with? Because this intrigued me a lot. Your NPX statement, you had one one sentence that grabbed me right there, considering your NPX statement is basically two sentences long. The first sentence grabbed me. My work is about interrogating power and examining the systems we live under. Um, Theater for social change, political plays. Um, I have a friend who claims that all art is political regardless, and I have a very hard time playing devil's advocate to that. Mm -hmm. So um, placing your work within the realm of the socially critical, political, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I recently saw I had the opportunity to watch a play outside the gates, which was uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe. Congratulations! The two characters, in my mind, they so should have gotten together and made something <laughs> wonderful and fantastic. And tell me about where these characters came from and how they developed, because I really want to know more about both of them. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe like them not getting together and making something amazing is like the limits of my own imagination (laughs) and my own cynicism, I guess. But um, in terms of like talking about the introductory sentence, like I feel like the systems that both of those characters lived under in that very stratified British society would not allow them really to... They, they're. It's almost like talking about reform versus revolution. So yeah. one of them is very outspoken, and their ideas about how to change things and make things um, good for their kids is like so diametrically opposed that they are like end up rubbing each other the wrong way. Yeah. Particularly for Samira, like she can't be around while she likes Heather. She can't really be around her because she's like almost dangerous to her safety, which is what she's after. She wants to like feel safe and for her kids to feel safe. And um, Heather now, wants Samira, to- Samira's Iranian, yeah. correct? Yeah. Iranian, okay. Yeah. Um, so she's got that status mm-hmm. to worry about every single day. Right. And so it kind of talks a lot about white privilege and mm-hmm. being having come from America, moving to the UK, I, I, Americans can be a little bit like myopic and feel like everywhere is like America. And we're all supposed to just like, you know, speak out against the power and like organize yeah, and like we yeah. can change things. It's our responsibility. But like everywhere is not like that. I mean, most places are not like that. Right. <laughs> so, we're bowls in China shops, really. Yeah, totally, totally. And we don't even realize it because you're just like, I'm going to be direct. I'm going to speak out. Mm -hmm. And like people, that that really rubs a lot of people in other cultures the wrong way, particularly the British. They get very confronted, I guess, because they're very much raised to not be individualists, not necessarily distinguish themselves, to kind of acquiesce to authority and to make things work in a more subtle, ironic, like under Mm -hmm. the 
covers kind of way, which Not is usually brash and outspoken and right, know. exactly. Because yeah. um, Americans are like, "Here's a problem. Let's fix it. Come on, guys. Come on. What are you waiting yeah. for? Let's do it. Yay!" Even thinking about problems in that way is very American. Yes. Like, here's the problem. I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to find a solution. I mean, other cultures are just like problems, 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 and that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the dynamics between the two women. One who's this incredibly brash American, pretty, I would say, clueless in, in, in a lot of ways as far as sensitivity to other people's reception and other people's status within a society. Because Samira actually says at one point, I, I, I need to be careful about what I'm doing here. You have, no, yeah. you have no idea what your activities can do to my particular status quo. And again, it was one of those moments in the play where I thought, oh, come on, you guys have to just... There's got to be a way to bridge this just this last little bit of gap because mm-hmm. the two of them liked each other, mm-hmm. right? And they were getting along so well. And then the American shows up in a bloody dress <laughs> to pick up her kid. I mean, that's the thing. The whole play takes place in front of the gates of a school. They're waiting for their kids to come out. And mm-hmm. it's very hard to find a more sensitive place mm-hmm. to put a conflict like this? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, it, it seemed for me really ripe with a dramatic possibility because there's so much, like, judgment going on in that space and so many things happening to yeah. be able to imagine in the space of the theater. So it seemed really... And for me, like... And it's a very British story because in America, you put your kid on a bus and they don't do that over yeah. there. Um, and, and for a lot of women, like in their thirties and from my understanding of like suburban British life, that's the only social interaction they'll have in a day. So there's like that much more weight on every exchange because it's very lonely when people don't, they're not warm and friendly and open. And it's hard to connect when people are just like, like, you know, traffic, weather, and like what clubs your kids have. That's the only thing it's acceptable to talk about. It was hard for me. So that's something that I wanted to like kind of explore. Yeah, like culture is strong. Culture is really intense. And that was interesting to me to talk about. And these two people being outsiders, that's why they connect. They wouldn't like, if they were in a different situation, maybe they wouldn't have gotten close because what exactly do they have in common? (laughs) Well, neither one of them is English. And they're both... They're both foreigners, so they have to. One has to watch her status because it's tricky, and mm-hmm. the other is darn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. And while this is going on, I keep thinking, especially for Samira, because she keeps looking around at what everybody else is watching. Mm-hmm. She's like, it becomes very, very uncomfortable for her. And but there's the kids, mm-hmm. and. You could almost go by this whole play with it without without talking about the kids, but for me it was there was very little interaction. Oh, hi, honey, you're home. That's sort of thing. Let's go. You know, the kids are all spaced up, so we never see them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this is the future. Yeah. And these two women are trying to deal with how they want the future to be, and yet here are their kids. And if it wasn't high pointed, the crisis wasn't high pointed enough. This kind of sent it over the edge for me because I'm watching all these kids come out. And yeah, yeah, it's what do what do we do with this future? 
Well, I think people, I think I'm, I'm learning that people have very um, diametrically opposed views of what they want their kids to learn because uh-huh. as me as an American coming into suburban British parenthood, especially as a step parent, um, the most important thing it seems to me for them to teach their kids is to fit in and behave. Mm-hmm. And I'm more like the character where it's like, I'm trying to like right wrongs. I want them to teach them to be good people to stand up for like some, a, like to a bully or, and that is making me puts a mark on my kind of face essentially. Cause I walk into school going, the teacher said this to my kid and blah, blah, blah. And people are like, Oh, you American. You're just so, yeah. you're, you just get discounted completely. And so I think both, both women are aware of their status and what other people think about them very much. So they just have different ways of managing it because living in like Brexit, England, anybody who's not white and British is, um, suspect. Yeah. Has to has to uh, justify themselves somehow. <laughs> well, the, the nationalism has been on the rise both in mm-hmm. UK and in the states, and I guess other places as well. And it's getting really these are these are very very dangerous times that we are yeah. living in right now. I mean, this interview will definitely not go up until you know maybe the second month of February or March of 03, uh, 23. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now we are a couple of days ahead of. The U.S. elections. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, I I do not know. I'm uh, my cynicism is basically saying that the evil ones are way more organized than, than the good folks are. Uh, yes, I'm taking sides on this one. Sue me. Mm-hmm. I'm really hoping we can we can turn this thing around. I'm hoping we can get another leg up and push the whole right-wing agenda back into that, you know, help push it back into that dark cave that it oozed out from. Mm -hmm. So these are very, very treacherous times. And by the time this thing airs, we'll know what will have happened. But right now, it's just making my blood pressure crazy. Yeah, I think that's the idea. Like, I I can't understand, like, okay, so it was supposed to be like a big blue wave, like a month ago or whatever, when the paper was writing. And now... It's going to be total massacre or whatever. But, like, what's changed in the interim? Like, what's the event that's made all these people decide, well, I was going to vote Democrat, and now I'm voting Republican. Like, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. And I, I, it's, I'm a, a lousy political uh, an analyst, but I, I do look at my, the way I view the world as a historian. And since Trump got into office, I think the thing that's, become so obvious, at least to white Americans, is the thing that everybody else in the country knew. And that was, no, there's a side of this you haven't seen yet because you don't live the way we do. And now those voices have had the imprimatur to speak out loud without whispering in the shadows anymore. Yeah. So you think the majority of people are like actual fascists? I think it's a lot more than we we wanted to believe. I think we're waking up and realizing that the nightmare is part reality mm-hmm. or a large part. But in of the last two years, the Democrats have passed like overwhelmingly popular legislation, which is the first time in like 30 years or something that they've actually, government's actually done anything for people's like material 
kind of like day-to-day existence. The job rate is really good. There's building factories in America, but I guess the messaging yeah. isn't that good. I don't know. Messaging is lousy. Messaging yeah. is lousy. And it, the system of political attack has been honed to a fine craft. Getting it across on the news, the corporate multimedia news, uh, is one thing because a lot of that stuff just doesn't filter through down to the, you know, the viewer at home. Uh, right. And that's part of the problem. And education is under attack because if you start teaching something that somebody else doesn't like, you're going to be in trouble. And education has been in serious, serious trouble for yeah. decades, decades. So making people aware because... Right, they don't have critical thinking skills. No, they don't. Humanities. No, yeah. they don't. But they, they've also been distracted by working two jobs. Yeah. And wondering how they're going to afford their rent and wondering, you know, if minimum wage or, or livable wage will ever become a thing. So there's so many things that people are scrambling around for right now. And being politically aware, not at the top of the list because they're worried about their day-to-day stuff. And I guess the culture wars are like a tried and true distraction. Absolutely, yeah. What was the reaction in Edinburgh um, to your show? What, have you, um, what was the I, audience walking out thinking? Well, I, we performed online, so we were able to be, we okay. were hosted on, in the online aspect of the festival, but we were chosen by the Fringe Society, and they showed the play to a bunch of teachers in Scotland, and then we had a Q&A chat mm-hmm. afterwards. Um, that was definitely the highlight of the festival for me, because um, that was when I finally got to interact with audience. I mean, we got great audience reviews on our page, but the, the way that the teachers spoke about not only as a teacher understanding, like, kind of the fraught aspects of parents waiting at the school gate, but mm-hmm. Scotland in particular takes a lot of refugees they and so they were wondering about like the nuance on a day-to-day basis of whether people felt as welcome as they kind of perceived that they did knowing that Scotland takes many people in so that was a good discussion as well as few people talking about being women in their 30s and being asked so often when they're going to have children in like really rude ways that's always a sensitive question yes yeah so it was a really 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 amazing um experience and then a couple of the teachers wanted the script to teach to their students so yeah that was awesome it was a really great discussion and also with the other actress and our director because they also wanted to know about there's a whole plot point about the iranian having the nhs midwife show up at her house because it's nhs policy that they won't tell a middle eastern person person if they're having a boy or a girl because of this bias that they're going to abort a female Mm. baby which was her own personal experience so we had an audience member going leo what's up with that and then betsaba our actress was like yeah Mm. that happened to me so she'd gone in for a sonogram and they wouldn't tell her because at that time i mean i I think it's changed now yeah and it's not a very litigious culture so things just kind of happen and people say things and who knows is it is it official policy or is it somebody's opinion or whatever but that was her understanding at that time and i just like grabbed all these little things and like put it in the script Jesus, that's crazy. It's just, yeah, Americans are probably the most litigious people in the history of the world. I mean, you look at us crossways and we'll sue you for some whatever reason. I think that was great. And now that I've lived in the UK for five years, I think it's awesome. They should sue more. Ah, uh, okay. Well, yeah. 
I don't know about that. I mean, it's, I think my, I'm thinking a lot of this litigiousness is just encouraging us to stay at war with everybody else without finding different ways of solving problems. But it implies that there's a system of laws that apply yeah. equally to people and that you can access that as an individual. There's a lot of ways we can come together on this. It would just take a few more hours of talking. We could have this whole thing solved out. I'm serious. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. Because we're both intelligent human beings. And why, why wouldn't it work out? Of course. How much of this play, like that little bit uh, that Betseba came up with, occurred in development, in rehearsals? How, was the script... Um, very different from when you walked into the rehearsal room for the first time? No, it's pretty much written all beforehand. And then there were a few anecdotes from Betsaba that we talked about in her audition that I've added, that mm-hmm. being one of them, about the midwife. And then she wanted to change some language around making the references to Iran and Iranian culture more right. authentic. Otherwise, no, it was pretty much written beforehand. And then maybe there were some lines that I cut because it was too verbose, but it didn't fundamentally change that much. And I wouldn't say that it was a devised piece. It was mostly already done. And it came about with, I had a friend in acting class who came to me and said, oh, let's do something online in the fringe because it was, would be cheaper and a bit simpler to get it off the ground. So I was like, okay, I'll write it. And then I wrote it for her and me and then she dropped out. But yeah, I very, I wrote it very quickly and I had been doing the artist way. I'm sure you know about Julia Cameron's yeah. program. Um, so I was almost at the end of that. So I was almost primed to kind of like just get it all out. And I feel like it's very personal to like my own experience, really, and my own opinions about this little kind of snapshot of life. And a lot of the content is also what's not in the script about what happens between these pickups and what their relationships are like with their families and what's happening in the classroom. And I kind of wanted it to be these little vignettes where the structure would kind of support more questions than answers around culture Mm. and the politics of parenting. And yeah, I, I, I came away from this thinking this was a brilliant piece of work and touched on so many things, but as with things of this particular nature, there's just so much more that was, like you said, not said and implied and things that could be discussed. It's like this teeny tiny little microcosm of so much of the world and so much of people and so much of why we can't communicate with each other because we don't know how, and mm-hmm. we don't understand how somebody else wants to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, I came up against that a lot in my own interpersonal exchanges because I'm the kind of person that gets into the meat of things with people. Like, I yeah. want to talk about feelings, politics, like things that matter to me. And that's kind of how I experience life in New York City, where you like walk up to somebody on the street and they'll be like, I just came from my therapist. I'm so depressed. Blah, blah, blah. But you have this kind of instant intimacy with people and they're open to a certain extent. Right. And then I moved to suburban middle England and I found myself becoming like a shell of who I was because I had to 
conform in a certain way to make other people comfortable. Cause I knew I was making them uncomfortable because I'm swearing, I'm gesturing, I'm too yeah. loud, I'm too American, whatever. And then I had to change like the subject of what I was able to talk about. And then, so it was a kind of a nice fantasy to imagine going in the other direction, which is kind of what the Heather character is like. It's very much kind of like me, but like so much more extreme as if I didn't really give a fuck, which I probably do too much. I probably care too much, but I've decided that like, I don't, really need to ingratiate myself to those people but it is a lonely existence just not having anybody to talk to it's difficult for new yorkers yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, look, I, I grew up in new york city and it's, I, I moved to the country many years ago and the customs are so different yeah and everything is 10 times slower it's you can't talk the same way no. to people in other places where they are a lot more polite than we were ever raised to be and a lot less blunt than, you know, we are used to, you know, how are you? And people tell you how they are yeah. for 20 yeah. minutes. And the rest of the yeah. world is like, that's not exactly what I meant. I just kind of want, Well, yeah. I found this super interesting when I moved to the UK because people don't say, how are you? Like an open-ended question. People say, you're right. Because it's like a way of controlling the situation. Because you are right, like you're right, okay? So that like, no, they I'm not all right. Everything's going wrong. Here's the list, you know. And, they and, told you uh, how you are because they don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> people. You ever get that? You're you're from New York, right? That question. Yeah. So it's mm -hmm. not just it's not just me. Well, they don't have to ask because I'm walking around going, "Get the fuck out of here!" Oh my uh, god. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then and they just go. Oh, you see the look of horror and the deer in the headlights, and I'm like, "You oh, said that word. Oh my god." These Americans, they're crazy. Um, and then the, on top of that, it's those, you don't want to hurt your children's social interactions. So right. are the parents going to be like, oh, well, that you can't, that kid can't play with that kid because I don't like that mom, whatever. And it's, yeah. it's real. There's a lot of levels. It is, especially when you've got, we've got kids to work into the, the life schedule. Yes. And what, what ignited your activism? Where did you... Where along the stage of, of this this thing you're you're calling existence, mm -hmm. did you turn around and go, oh my God, not, not only am I paying attention to something, but I have things to say and damn it, I'm going to say them. I think um, that was part of my religious upbringing, really. I was raised in a reformed Jewish synagogue in upstate New York, and we mm -hmm. were a definite minority in upstate New York. Oh, yeah. um, and our rabbis were kind of like hippies. They were a husband and wife and everything related back to what your responsibility is as a human being. It's to like make the world better and to lift up people who are not as fortunate and do everything that you can to like do the work of healing the world. So that was pretty strong indoctrinated into <laughs> me, I guess. Mm. And then um, my parents were, we would always have like political discussions. They were like, more liberal than I am, but very much like enraged all the time. Like I remember going out with my grandparents and my parents, like, I can't believe these crazy people. Blah, blah. And it was like a lot of ar ar interrupting and arguing <laughs> at the dinner table. And then when I got to New York, I became a member of the Living Theater out of college. And so mm -hmm. that then I went like way into anarchism, which m even my own family was like, what the hell? Like, I was like, I don't vote anymore. And this is all like, you know, I'm not, I'm rejecting the system. And um, Judith Molina was a really big mentor to me. 
And this was actually after, I mean, during the Iraq war, I remember doing walkouts at university and there was, that was a kind of a period of controlled protest. It wasn't effective in any way. Like you had your free speech zones and the Bush years were very difficult. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you'd have your speech at the end. And then, I mean, that was a huge day of action when the Iraq war started, and it didn't make any difference. It was very mm-hmm. dark, very difficult. Yeah, that was one thing I noticed, because we, we did, the, we did the, the marches, we did the letters, we did yeah. everything a good citizen has been told they should do to effect change. And what became very clear was the other side had learned, we can ignore you. Yeah, we can just let you do whatever it is you want to do. And we're just going to keep right on going. And you look back to the end of Watergate when Nixon resigned in shame because he had done wrong. And and Mm -hmm. all these people were brought up before the entire country. And you have done what you have done illegal things. And some of them went to jail. And now it's like, (laughs) what are you going to do? Shut up. Go home. We have wave your flags, whatever, that sort of thing. I totally um, felt like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's and then I think that's why Occupy Wall Street was a real sea change of igniting. That people. got attention. Yeah, yeah. That no, that that got a lot of attention. That got more attention than many other things up until that point had. And, and I'm I was not in saying... Afghanistan when um it started and I came back like a couple days into it and I was like, Oh, I know I'm gonna be there. And this is gonna be like something that's going to be really important. It was awesome. It was it was a heck of a thing. I mean, it's it actually got on the news. It was covered every night. Mm-hmm. And for me it was it was a big part of my attention existence. And not just because I knew people who were in it. I know a bunch of people who are in it. You know, we have a mutual friend who is who was one of the, you know, mm-hmm. Kim Frachek who is just, you know, she's always up front going, ah! and making yeah. puppets and making noise and speaking her mind like a good New York American should, mm-hmm. but yeah, she's still saving the world. I'm so uh, in awe of Kim. She's amazing. I, I I am totally in awe of her. She's one of my heroes, mm-hmm. and I worry about her mental health whenever yeah. the subject of her comes up because she's too good to lose. She's yeah, but that's the problem of fighting the fight. There is a shelf life for your level of commitment, and there is a shelf life for your ability to continue because it's exhausting yeah certainly in terms of showing up and being on the street it's like you got to go in and out and even like organizing and going to meetings all the time like that will burn you out as well Mm -hmm. and i think that that was what was great about having the puppet group because it was we had a focus on making puppets (laughs) and art and stuff so it was like right we're here to get something done not to like hear ourselves talk and have all these endless meetings. And surely there are like always really challenging personalities. I, I, I feel like I function relatively well in these horizontal spaces with no hierarchy, yeah. but it is draining and time consuming. And that's part of the experiment, but it does get frustrating when you're trying to accomplish things. <laughs> well, if, for those folks out there who are not used to committee work, who are not used to development work, who are not used to more than a few people getting together to accomplish one goal. What you might not realize is many of those people cannot actually agree on what the actual goal is. Yeah. Many of us uh, are going to come at it from different points of view and want different things and want these 
these roads to accomplishing whatever that goal is done in completely different ways from other people. Mm -hmm. And those people who don't want to do it the way other people want to go off and form another group, which means instead of having one solid group, we now have three, six, nine, whatever it happens to be, groups with somebody in the lead saying, this is the way it should be done. That's why writing seems like a better use of my time. Like, I Oh my God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, oh. oh people who know me like, are always asking, what are you writing now? None of your business. Mm -hmm. I will tell you when the third draft is done, then it will come out because you know what? I don't want you asking me, how's your play about X going? You know, if you look this up and that sort of thing, it's it's just not conducive to development. I, I was working on a play a number of years ago where there's a guy who's 30 years old and still thinks he's three. And mm -hmm. I'm, all of a sudden I'm getting URLs from people going, here's a play, here's the stuff about guys in diapers. And I'm like, no, no, just keep that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough working in groups because we all want something to happen and getting together. It's like the characters in Outside the Gates. I mean, they all want, both of them want a good life for their kids. They want to be safe. Yeah. They want to be happy. Yeah. Getting together is the hard part in finding common I was not to say common cause. I'm going to say f common methods of doing things or common well, language. Well, that's interesting to me as a writer to show is like, I'm not so interested in like very clear black and white lines about good right. guys and bad guys. Um, I'm more interested in like, what's the system that they're living under that stops them from getting together? Because that's more real to me. Yeah. I mean, it's... Be nice I hope we can that everything... they can audience think about that because it would be disingenuous that they would just like get together and then like solve the problem because that's yeah. not real. No, it's not real. It's not reality. It's a dream. It's a hope. It's, hey, why don't we, you know, let's, let's put on a show, but there won't be the audience to fix it. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. You go do it. <laughs> yeah. There are so many grays that the black and whites just don't even exist anymore, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that we're not taught, which is we're back to critical thinking skills and the rea teaching the reality. We've been conditioned to think that things are so simple. Everything's automatic now. Yeah. Right? And, and that's what was so interesting about Heather's character to me and that what I found from friends who, American friends in particular who had read it, they thought that they would identify with her. But then at the end, when she steps over the line, now I personally don't feel like she was stepping over the line, but the reaction was so strong that she made somebody feel unsafe that they changed their minds. And I think it's so hard to advocate for people and be sensitive to what their vulnerabilities might be when you take yourself to be like a savior. That was, that was one of the things about the play that I really liked because it didn't end with a nice wrap up. It didn't end happily, everybody going home, you know, feeling good about themselves and there's hope. And it mm -hmm. was more or less, this is what we're trying to do. And this is one of the reasons why we haven't done it yet, because these are the things that we need to work on. And I think it was so much more illustrative of the reality of the situation rather than indulging us in the... Mm -hmm. The perfect ending is... Um... Well, I mean, even if you look at these activist spaces that you're talking about, who are the leaders are like the loudest, whitest, most educated, richest, whatever, mm -hmm. people who feel entitled to take over those spaces. So, you know, while it should be this totally egalitarian world of like, we're lifting up the oppressed, like it, it doesn't usually 
work out that way in reality. And people are like, oh, I'm more radical than you are because I'm on the streets all the time. But it's like, well, what if I'm undocumented and have to work three jobs? How, what, how revolutionary is that when I can't participate? Learning how to talk to each other and learning how to understand and learning how to take what people can give and putting it towards mm -hmm. without... Not shaming them. Yes. Let's, let's turn this around a little bit because I really want to talk about your full length and development raving. A mm -hmm. Terpsichore tragical comedy. Yeah. Uh, okay. Can you explain that? Because that's a, you know, that's a $4 word right there, Terpsichore. Yeah. So Terpsichore is refers to the dance. Right. And the play is about the dancing plague of 1518, which was a historical event where hundreds of people in Strasbourg danced themselves to death. So it's about, it's sort of a imaginary spinoff on this event. And... You know, raving is like a play on a rave and yeah. being crazy. So it's, it's about like this case of mass hysteria. And it sort of has different hypotheses for why this may have happened. And and I'm trying to bring out an allegory for how the medieval times can parallel our own time, especially this time of really great change where systems are crumbling and people are vulnerable and how they get their information has changed so much. So it's after the Black Plague and before the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And there's, so there's a lot of opportunity for COVID parallels because it's like, how do the systems deal with plague and putting the essential workers out first and protecting themselves? And, and it's also the church is the only power structure. So they're selling indulgences and you have to be able to pay insurance essentially to get into heaven. And not right. everybody can afford that. And the church wants to hang on to their power, but there's all these like rumblings of different cults that are coming up that are challenging the church's power. And then one of the main characters is Paracelsus, who is the father of modern chemistry, who is also an alchemist. So these questions about belief in science and our changing understanding of the world in a society that's extremely superstitious was really interesting to me when looking at it from the lens of our own world it's yeah. it's about too many things probably and it's too wordy and it's like trying to write in verse it's sort of like a medieval mystery play similar to some of carol churchill's plays set right. in medieval times nobody wants to do it or <laughs> you know they, but, people don't know how to read plays necessarily so they read it and they're like oh this language is too flowery you can't do that but i've actually read it out loud and i think it works so i'm thinking of doing a recording of it to kind of accompany the script so people are like oh okay like you can speak this it's hard to read stuff off of a page and imagine it even if you've been doing it for years because some plays just do not translate into the filter mm -hmm. of who's ever reading it right now you're talking about the black plague you're talking about raving you're talking about the church, all these things, and yet I'm still seeing in the description here it's a comedy. And yes, so in a Brechtian way, it's a, Brechtian, a sort of yeah. satirical send-up. I mean, maybe it's not a comedy, but I from talking to my dramaturg, she thought it was important to put the subtitle so that it could be read in a certain with a certain amount of humor. I think. Sure. It's it's really hard to discern dark humor um, some yeah. days because a lot of people aren't attuned to it. And mm -hmm. some people will come back saying, well, you're making fun of this and it shouldn't be making fun of this. And sometimes the only way you can translate this issue is to make fun of it, to hold it up to mm -hmm. something that will 
take the sting out of it just a little bit and yet allow it to be consumed just yeah. a little bit easier because if you hit people with drama, 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 death, then it's going to, it's hard to deal. But if you can make somebody laugh or yeah. empathize or even best, which I love, make somebody laugh at something they shouldn't really be laughing at at that particular mm-hmm. moment, you can translate that moment across to them and you can reach just a little bit better, I think. Yeah, I'm trying to like write jokes and like be clever and similar. I do, I think I do it also in Outside the Gate, but also with raving, it doesn't have a happy ending. <laughs> okay. It is, you know, people die. And then similar also to raving, it's like up to the audience what they do with all these questions more than trying to hit people over the head with this is how things need to be. Right. Um, it's tough. Yeah. And there are, I mean, there are, it's interesting topics to me. I mean, this is the, the, the doctrine of discovery and the beginning of colonialism and the printing press is like the uh-huh. internet. So like, the sure. people's minds are opening up, common people's minds are opening up to a world in a different way that they didn't even know existed that would like blow your head open. And that was interesting to me as I a mean, parallel to our I mean, own time. Books themselves. I mean, it's it's one of those subjects that we take for granted because we're surrounded by billions and billions and billions of books and it's a common mm-hmm. thing. But back in the day, it was dissemination of information to the masses, which had never been done before. It was the first mass media. And that's right? going to bring down the church. <laughs> it's going It's going to bring everything down. Every, yeah, totally. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's like that's, the internet. Mm-hmm, that's why everything was, there were sections with Europe where every, printing was banned, except for, which mm-hmm. book am I talking about? The Bible. The big book, yeah. That was the only one you were allowed to read, um, if you were allowed to read it at all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all right, this definitely sounds like something I want to see. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see it also, because it has the opportunity for, like, giant dance numbers, and um, and the, my idea was that you would have, you would go into communities, and mm-hmm. you would have six main actors, but everybody else could be just, like, people. You could have, like people from shelters, like children, like community yeah. people, and they could just be the townspeople and they could dance. And then the audience dances. So I, I, I think it could be like a cool event, but I can't afford to do it. <laughs> somebody will. Uh, it's, yeah. You keep it there and you keep it going and somebody will look at this thing going, yeah, this really needs to reach the audience. Claire Lee Ruitz King, this has been so much fun. I wish we could do this for like a few more days, hours, weeks, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, thank you for being here and thank you for all the work you're doing. Not only playwriting and, and and directing and but the activism as well because yeah we need this we really really do so thank you for all this be well thank take you. care take care hey kids thanks for listening to on stage off stage on stage off stage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes and Spotify. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or know of someone in the theater who'd make some seriously good chat, by all means, send us a note at info at OnStageOffStage.org. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening. And please, stay safe, be careful, not only for yourself, but for those with whom we all share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you.